Well, good morning. Glad you're here. Welcome to Ridgetop Church. Uh, we're kind of moving into the summer mode. Um, some students still around, but a lot have finished up finals and are headed out. So um, this is it's kind of a new season, but we're, we're finishing up uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been doing this, I don't know, 12 weeks, something like that. And uh, I've been using this house analogy that I stole from uh, Be Transformed Workbook by Scope Ministries. And uh, been talking about how Jesus has been addressing a lot of our thoughts, feelings, words, actions, um, and, and talking, saying things to us like, well, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder, but I say you shouldn't be angry with your brother, right? And so dealing with a lot of these things that are above the ground, so to speak, and that he's also explaining to us how those come out of a set of beliefs that are sometimes below the ground, below the surface. We're not even aware of some of those beliefs. And one of the major beliefs was that God was a loving, uh, involved, and powerful Father. That He says over and over and over and over again, that our Heavenly Father who, who loves us. Um, and in this last section, I, I, I think He's pushing to... A, a new concept that's related to some of those uh, previous concepts and, and this concept of our identity, right? That the beliefs that we hold in the, in, in the sort of deepest recesses of our heart is not just like a nice little bullet point list. It's, the beliefs are actually this composite of an identity. And they are the result of things we've heard and felt and experienced and read and you know, all of our, our lives, we've been building this sort of composite identity that's in, uh, in the basement. And out of that is coming thoughts, feelings, actions, and words. There's a lot of talk of identity in our culture. And to some degree, I think it's, it's helpful. And I think there are some parallels with how Scripture understands the human being. Uh, we hear a lot about sexual identity, that... Below the surface, there is some kind of sexual identity that is bubbling up with thoughts and feelings and actions and words. Um, This is especially at the forefront in the conversation about transgenderism, where it says when the basement is an identity of a particular gender, and that's coming up into the thoughts and the feelings and the actions. And... Folks will look at that, and especially on the conservative side, especially if, if the, the thoughts, feelings, and actions aren't consistent with the uh, actual uh, biology of the person, they say, well, that's just crazy that you believe that. And what they're saying is that, no, I have this identity that's underneath, underneath the surface, that's bubbling up in thoughts, feelings, and actions. There's a lot of talk about racial identity. Uh, And on the surface, you might think, well, race is just the color of your skin. But actually, having a particular color of the skin determines some of your experiences, right? And so that that creates an identity that's underneath, that's bubbling up in thoughts, feelings, actions. There's also ethnic identity or a cultural identity, right? And so... Uh, might have a certain color skin, but a different kind of culture than another person with the same color skin. And so your experiences are different. Your growing up is different, and it creates an identity, and out of that identity are thoughts and feelings and actions. There's religious identity. Whatever you grew up, if you grew up Catholic or you didn't have religion at all in your growing up, that has created 
and identity, and all those do intersect. Sometimes you hear about the intersectionality of identities. And so in each of us down there in the basement is an identity, a composite of things that we've experienced, that we've felt, that we've learned, that we've believed about reality, about ourselves, about God, about others. And it's bubbling up into our thoughts and our feelings and our actions. Now, as Christians, we also believe that that composite down in the basement that's, uh, when, when lived apart from God, especially, is affected by sin. That whatever that composite identity is, especially when it's lived apart from God, it is, has a, it's, an effect, it's affected by sin. Sometimes Christians talk about a total depravity, and uh, when you hear that, you think, are you saying that there's no good in human beings? No, that term actually means more you are wholly uh, depraved, right? W-H-O-L-L-Y. Meaning everything about us is at least touched or tainted by sin. So whatever that identity is, that composite, that organic network, relational network down there in the basement, it's been affected by sin. And what what Christ is offering is a transformation of the identity. No matter who we are, no matter how we grew up, no, no matter what the color of our skin is or our ethnicity, it, Christ is offering a complete transformation of the identity that's down in the basement. Uh, that new identity does not negate those old identities, but it is beyond those identities. I'll say that again. That new identity doesn't doesn't negate all those identities. Those things matter. Our ethnicity matters. The color of our skin matters. The way we grew up matters. Like, Like that does have a part of that composite, even when we're Christians, but the new identity, the transformed identity is beyond those identities. That new identity is transracial. It is transreligious, even. It's transsexual. That's what that term means, like beyond gender, right? It's, it, it, it's like this greater identity that is more primary, it is more prominent, it is more foundational. This is what we were communicating with those baptisms last week. We're taking a whole human being and we're plunging them under the water. Right? Why are we doing that? Well, partly Jesus told us to do that, but I think what's being communicated is the whole person, body, soul, spirit is being transformed in the gospel. They don't just put their brain in there, in the water. They put their whole person in there, their past, their present, everything they've experienced, everything about that composite identity down in the basement is being plunged into the gospel and then raised up with new power, new life. And partly what we've been reading and, and, and talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is what that transformed person looks like, right? The things that they have rejected and forsaken and the things that they've now adopted. But part of how that happens is the transformation of your identity. And I think this is what Jesus is driving at in this passage that we're looking at today. So, three points out of this section, which feels at first like a little grab bag of parables and, and, and teachings. Uh, first, the, the results of identity, the root 
of identity and the reveal of identity. The results, the root, and the reveal. So the results. Um, Matthew 7, verse 12. And I encourage you to, to follow along with me here. Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So I think he starts with the, the results of this new identity. And he sums up, this is, this is a way to sum up the Sermon on the Mount, is treat others like you want to be treated. And he even says, this is a summation of the law and the prophets. You may remember him saying this, something similar, also in the book of Matthew and other gospels, where he says, that, you know, love God and love your neighbor. This is the summation of the law and the prophets. Well, here he says, treat others as you want to be treated. This is the law and the prophets. Now, that sounds really good until we start thinking about how I want to be treated, right? Like, I want people to move toward me. I want them to relate with me. But not just that, I want them to respect me. But not just respect me, I want them to be kind to me. I, I don't just want them to be kind to me, I want them to be generous to me. I don't just want them to be generous, I want them to appreciate me. Actually, I want them to delight in me. And then, on top of all that, forgive me when I screw up. That's how I want people to treat me. Oh, yeah, and I want, to, I want them to sacrifice for my needs. That's how I want people to treat me. In a word, I want them to love me. I want them to love me unconditionally. And so if I really think about how I want to be treated, and then I go, okay, that's how I want to treat others, oh, my, it begins to feel very weighty. It's very weighty, and it's like the whole Sermon on the Mount, just kind of crushing us, the call of God in our lives, to treat others as, we've, as we want to be treated. And Jesus acknowledges that this is really hard, right? And this is where he goes into the narrow way. And he's like, there's this narrow way, which is the Sermon on the Mount, which is the golden rule. It's the narrow way, and few choose it. Few choose this narrow way. Why? Because it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to live the golden rule, to treat others as you would like to be treated, which is why there's a wide path that many take. Why? Because it's easy to take the path of rejecting others, not giving others proper respect, refusing kindness, not giving generously, unappreciating others. Delighting in oneself over and against others, withholding forgiveness, refusing sacrifice, lacking in love. That's the narrow way. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the broad way. And why is it so broad and why do so many take it? Because it's so easy. It's so easy to take it, especially grounded in an identity that is absolutely captive to sin. It just feels natural to take the broad way. Now, we hear that, that narrow way, broad way, kind of challenge. Jesus kind of throws down the gauntlet there. And we, depending on who we are, we respond to it differently. So some of us, we despair. 
And we just go, you're right, I can't do it. You just convinced me, Robert. Great sermon. I can't do this. And you despair, and you can't wallow in despair for too long, so you go medicate it or you escape it, right? And this is, this is some of us, right? Others, we get driven. Oh, yeah, I'll follow the golden rule. I will take the narrow path. Yes! And we do this kind of inner drive uh, that we're going to better ourselves and we get some self-help books and get some podcasts. I'll get a life coach. It'll be amazing. I will take the narrow path. Still others, we get devoted. It's not inner drive. It's outer devotion. It's some, to, to, to something bigger than us. Maybe it's a cause. Maybe it's eradicating sex slavery. Maybe it's orphan care, right? But some of us, it's devotion to religion. That is what will put me on the narrow path. I will pray and I will fast and I will sing and I will recite sacred writings and then I will become the person who is on the narrow path. And these are the kinds of people that are listening to Jesus. They're definitely the devoted type. They're feeling like if I just avail myself to a greater devotion to religion, I will be able to be on the narrow path. Now, Jesus then moves into discussing false religion. I don't think this is by accident. Um, and he, he says here in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, first gaze at this, we, we think, oh, this is like a workshop on how to, you know, figure out who the bad TV preacher is, you know, like, like we, we're going to figure out the bad religious people. But Jesus has been doing this thing where he's talking about the religious hypocrites of the day, and I think it's an indirect way to deal with the hearer, <laughs> to deal with us, right? Um, and so he does this tree and fruit analogy that he's actually quite fond of, um, and he talks about quote-unquote, false prophets. Now, the prophets would have been the most religious of all, right? They're the professional religious. This is their full-time job. And so they are speaking for God. This is how religious they are. They say, this is what God says. And so Jesus says, you know, a true prophet, when they have good fruit, you know, a false prophet, when they have bad fruit. Now, think about this. Um, this is, again, so simple of an illustration, but so profound. So, this, this picture is of what kind of tree? Apple tree. You guys are brilliant. What, what are you, horticulturalists? Arborists? Arboriculture? That's a thing? No, you just see the fruit. I guess you're not, most of you, maybe, maybe some of you are horticulturalists. And what about this next one? What kind of tree is that? Good. You guys are good. Right? It's, it's really 
simple. And, and so Jesus is saying the inward reality is expressed on the outside. And this has been throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He's been doing this inward, outward, inward, outward, inward, outward thing. But here he's saying it's coming from an identity. It's not just get your inward house in order, believe the right set of bullet points, and you will be free from sin. He's saying, no, you need to become an apple tree. You who are a thorn bush, your spiritual DNA needs to to do a 180, and you need to become an apple tree. It's an identity. It's a change of identity. Um, We see this kind of fruit inspection uh, in the qualifications for elders, for instance. In 1 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul is talking about the kind of people who are supposed to be the leaders in the church, the, the elders who are shepherding and teaching and overseeing. And uh, he says this, this, is a, a tr- a tr- this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, uh, they must be above reproach. And then he goes into this list of things that would be considered above reproach. He says, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This is a list for fruit inspection. Is is this person someone that should be trusted to be a leader in the church? The only way we know what's in the basement is if we look at the fruit. Is this person an apple tree or is this person a thorn bush? How do we know? We look at the fruit. And it's just a list of mostly character qualities. It doesn't say, does he attend church every week? I mean, yeah, they should, right? Does he read his Bible regularly? I mean, yeah, elders should read their Bible regularly and pray regularly and all this. That's not what Paul says look at. He says, look at the fruit of their character, right? The fruit is, is, is revealing whether or not the person is a Christian at all and whether or not they are a mature Christian. Um, whether they have grown in their dependence on gospel grace through faith. He's definitely not saying... You know, if they've tried really hard to become these things and got a life coach to help them, he's saying, oh, have they experienced a, a new identity in Jesus that they've grown in and it's revealed these different kinds of fruit? Their only skill that's mentioned in that list is able to teach. And I think he smushes them, these things together because he wants the leader in the church to exemplify what they're teaching. So if they're teaching people to, to be apple trees, they need to be an apple tree. It's hard to teach people to be apple tree if you're a thorn bush. That doesn't mean they're perfect, but it means that God has transformed the identity and it's revealing this fruit of that new identity. Um, so the, the results on the, above the, the ground reveal this deeper root, which is identity. The results show the root of a, of a deeper, an unseen reality. Um, Jesus really has been hammering this throughout the sermon, this inward-outward thing. 
this integration of this inside and outside. Um, and as he's been doing this, he's been going after false religion like crazy. So we just heard him talk about it in terms of the false prophets. He does it again in verse 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here he, he's, he's, he's talking to some people on judgment day. And they're offering as evidence religious activity as proof they should be led into heaven. And they're saying, Lord, Lord. They didn't, they're not just saying Lord one time. They're saying it multiple times. Right? Jesus, you're Lord. Right? So they're, they're saying the right thing. They're also doing seemingly the right thing. Like they're saying prophecies. They're speaking on behalf of God. They're performing exorcisms. They're doing other religious work. And they're standing at the judgment seat and they're saying, this is evidence, Jesus, that we should be let in to heaven. And he looks at them and he goes, do I know you? I don't think I know you. Again, he, he's pushing on the religious people of his day and certainly on us to say this is not about our religious activities, although there's nothing wrong with saying that Jesus is Lord. There's nothing wrong with speaking the truth of God to others. We, sh we should be doing that. But Jesus is saying, that doesn't prove you're a Christian. What makes you a Christian is an identity of a Christian <laughs> given to you by God in a relationship with God. Um, the, the, the root, again, is something that's given to us by grace <laughs> that then reveals this these results, okay? So what reveals the true identity, right? And this is the, this is the third and final part here. Um, what he, he, he gives is, is this sort of, this is like the final um, reading here, this final parable is talking about what reveals the authenticity of a Christian identity, and in a nutshell, he's going to tell us it's suffering. It's suffering that reveals an authentic Christian identity. And he tells this story of the two home builders. Right? Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like foolish man who built his house on the, on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So, parable of two home builders. Uh, the, the one builds on sand. He's called a fool. Now, these are wisdom categories in the Old Testament, places like Proverbs. Technical definition for a fool is someone who knows the right thing and doesn't do it. They know the right thing, but they don't do it. So the fool knows that he should build on a rock. 
but he doesn't. Why? Because it's easier to build on sand. Does this sound familiar? Right? He's, he's come back to this narrow gate, um, broad gate. Right? So he takes the broad and easy way of the many. And in, in doing that, he doesn't have to dig down into the sand to find the bedrock in order to build his house on that. And the construction doesn't have to take the shape of the foundational rock because we're not talking about pouring a slab here, right? Like in, in our construction, we pour a nice flat slab and we just put a, a structure on top of it. It's nice and level. That's not the kind of building we're doing here. We're digging down into the bedrock and we're finding this wonky rock and then we're having to build on the rock according to the structure and the shape of the rock. That's hard. That's really hard. And so the fool looks at that and goes, I've got to dig really deep, and I've got to build my structure in accordance to the shape of this rock. I'm not doing that. I'm just going to flatten me out some sand, and I'm going to build my structure. And part of what Jesus is saying is that, that anything that's, that's found, the foundation that you choose, it's not Jesus, it's sand. Any foundation you choose to build your life on that's not Jesus it's sand. And it doesn't even matter if you know about the foundation, but you don't respond with, with faith and obedience. You're putting your life on sand. So false Christian religion or other religions are sand. Right? Spiritualism is sand. Scientism is sand. Narcissism is sand. Pragmatism is sand. All these things that we build our lives on, they're sand. Now, the, the wise person builds it on the rock. He hears the words and he heeds the words. She hears the words and she heeds the words. And it's harder. You got to dig down. It, this is even described in the version of the parable that's in Luke chapter 6, Luke 6, 48. It says, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. This is what he's talking about. It's harder to do this. And once you get to the bedrock, then the structure has to be built in accordance with the structure and the shape of the rock. That's harder. Right? So... Foolish builder builds their house, wise builder builds their house, and the storm comes. The storm beats on both houses. I think that's important. Does it mean, oh, I became a Christian, oh, life's going to be great now. It is going to be great, but not, maybe perhaps not in the way that you think. Storms are coming. Storms are coming. They're going to beat on the house, there's a lot of rain in this storm, so much rain that it becomes a flood. We had a pretty bad one a couple days ago. Right? So much rain that was flooding areas of the city, but not just a flooding rain, wind. And so there's a high wind that's beating on this house. And so you kind of buckle down and... Then you get through the storms over and you come out and you survey the damage. We did this a lot in Oklahoma when we lived in Oklahoma. We lived in, in the area of Oklahoma known as Tornado Alley. 
And multiple times we had to go down in the storm cellar uh, and, and just be down in this dark hole and just listening for the, for the tornado or the storm and just waiting until we got the all clear. And then we would come out and we would wonder, what are we going to find? Because sometimes when you come up in, in uh, Oklahoma and, and Midwest, this is what you find. You know? And we're hearing the sirens going off. Because they have this, if it's, if it's within one mile of the town, they have tornado sirens. It's, it's horrific, really. And you come up and you survey the damage. And so in this parable, come up out of the storm and you survey the damage. You check out the builder of the, of the fool who built on sand. And it's a wreck. There's nothing left, right? It's splinters and busted up bricks. And you go, well, what happened here? Bad foundation. Bad foundation. Because right across the street is another house that's pretty much the same building materials, brick and wood and whatever else, but it's still, it's, it, it's hardly touched. What happened? Good foundation. Good foundation. This one who is wise has heard the words of Jesus and they've heeded the words of Jesus by faith. And so the storms of suffering reveal certain results that are proof of the root. Okay, there's a sermon in a nutshell. The the storm of suffering reveals the results which are proof of the root. That if this identity is in Christ and and you have been transformed and given this new identity by grace through faith, there's going to be a resilience in you. Does it mean you're perfect? No. Does it mean you're not going to struggle? No. Does it mean you're going to have crazy days? No. There's going to be a storm coming at you. It's going to be hard. It's going to be harder some days than other days, but there's going to be resilience in you to be able to bear up under those storms. And, and that identity is given to you by God. It's given to you by God. Here's a good little summation of this in John chapter 1. Um, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see where he couples the belief and the identity together in those two verses? Those that are receiving him, that are believing in him, they're not just checking off a list of, of, of beliefs. They're actually receiving a new identity, becoming the children of God. And that is superseding every other identity that they have. Again, it doesn't negate those other identities, but it supersedes and it transforms. And it brings about a complete new and transformed person. And so the one who is believing in Jesus, the one uh, who... Uh, Jesus, who is perfectly wise, right? I mean, talk about somebody who built his house on, on, on the rock, right? The son of the father who lived with absolute perfection and then allowed the storm of our sin and the effects of our sin to crush him. I mean, he's no fool. He didn't deserve that. He's perfectly wise, our sin crushed him so that he could give new life and new identity to fools like us. 
And so Jesus is, is calling us to, to build our life on the foundation of Jesus, that he has died in our place to purchase. Um, how do we respond to this? Well, I think there's a lot of ways we could respond to this, but one is, if we're not yet a Christian, to put our life on the rock today, to trust in, to rely on Christ, to, to forgive us of our sins, and to gift us a new identity. This is what means, this is what means to become a Christian. It's not just, oh, I, be, I believe these things, check, 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 check. Those things matter, but it's, it's not less than that, but it is more than that. Is this receiving of the identity of a child of God. Um, and so regardless of what is down in that basement, how much we're struggling in our identity, how, how much uh, it's consistent with who God is and not consistent, like he, he just swoops in there and saves us. And then over time, he starts to change and transform, right? So it's like being adopted as a child. It's like, child, you are now my son. You are now my daughter. And the child's like, oh, really? I mean, I don't know. It, I don't know how I feel about this family. You're like, nope, you're mine now. And then over time, you learn how to live out that new identity, right? And so this would be the word to the Christian in the room, right? Is it part of the call in that two foundations parable, two, two builder parable, is to the Christian to build every part of their lives on the rock. To comprehensively take everything and build it on the rock. To hear and to heed Christ our Lord in every area of the rock. Which is in part what he's displaying in the Sermon on the Mount. Man, he's leaving nothing untouched. He is going after all kinds of things our anger, our lust, our religious practices. I mean, all of it, right? The way we handle our money, relationship, all of it. And he's saying, take that and, and build it on the rock of Christ and do so by his grace and through faith. We're reminded of what it, it took for Christ to make this building project available to us every time we come to this table. And we remember on the night before the storm, right? Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body broken for you. And I mean, the disciples in that room that night, they're a bunch of broken up old fools. They're incapable of hearing and heeding. And Jesus knows that there's no way on earth they're ever going to be able to build their house on the rock if he doesn't go to that cross on that day. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed the cup, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many. Why, Jesus? For the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. So he's letting them know, yeah, you have not heard and heeded <laughs> as you should have. And I, I, I'm going to forgive you of that. I'm going to take these fools and I'm going to bring you into this new life of wisdom, not because you deserve it, but because I love you, right? 
And by that grace, that new identity is given to us, and then we get to live that new identity out. And this identity is going to have so much resilience that it is going to stand up under the ultimate storm, which is death and judgment. And when that storm rages, our house is going to stand <laughs> if we're in Christ. Because, again, we've been given this identity by grace through faith. And so I'm going to encourage you, build your house on the rock. Keep building on the rock. You've not yet taken that first step of faith to put your life in Christ's hands. Do that this morning. And then continue to live that identity out in hearing and heeding both the words of the Sermon on the Mount, but all of the words that we get from Scripture. And I'm telling you, it's, these are words of, of life. Hard? Yes. May not be followed by many? <laughs> yes. But they are the path of life. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that when you saw us, fools that we are, in a, in, a, in a torrent of storms from sin and its effects, some of it of our own making, some of it just because of the world we live in, you staged a rescue attempt. And you came and you got us out of that. And you rescued us out of that storm and you put us on a rock. And we're grateful for that. And I, I pray, Lord, that for, for each in the room, that um, they would have a, a, an, an encouragement a, a, and a, a, just a hope that whatever comes their way throughout their lives and in the life to come, that the rock is going to be, it's going to stand fast, it's going to stand strong. And that our, our houses are going to, to make it through those storms, both now and the storm to come and the life to come. And so, God, we thank you for this reminder of the storm that you went through for us so that we didn't have to. And this taking the bread and the cup each week. And so, God, would you bless both the bread and the cup in our time together as we reflect on this, as we, as we sing, as we worship you. Um, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.